The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and audiobooks. This is episode 34 featuring Katrin Allen at the RWA conference in Adelaide. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Adelaide region, the Ghana people. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo podcast. I'm Kat Mayer from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. Today's guest is Adelaide-based reviewer Katrin Allen. I got to know Katrin online through her reviews at Dear Author and Audio Gals. So when RWA had their first conference in Adelaide last year, I knew we had to have Katrin on the show. If you're an audiobook reader, prepare to add significantly to your TBR. Or is it a TBLT to be listened to for audio? I'm not really sure. And speaking of audio, I should remind you that our Sally Thorne giveaway is still open. To win one of two signed copies of The Hating Game, just tell us who you would like to hear narrate The Hating Game, either as a comment on our blog or by using the hashtag BookThingo on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or Litzy. Bonus marks if you submit a video or audio entry. Rudy and I will pick our favourites. Entries close April the 21st, 2017 and this is open to overseas readers. Thank you to Sally Thorne for offering this fabulous prize. All the books and authors we mention in this episode will be listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Click on episode number 34. I'm Katrin and I blog at my own blog, Katrin's Musings, and I review also for Dear Author and I review audiobooks for Audio Gales. I discovered audiobooks because I hate exercise. <laughs> No, it's true. And um, I needed to do something and get off the couch. And I can't read a book while I'm walking around, so that's just dangerous. So I thought, how am I going to do some kind of exercise that's not going to bore me to tears? What am I going to do to distract myself from this physical activity that I don't want to do but I have to do? And I thought, well, I'll try an audiobook. And I've been following the Speaking of Audiobooks column at All About Romance and got a few recommendations and the first one I tried was a Georgette Heyer book the narrator was like 150 and it was really fusty and old and was that the woman narrator yeah there was one yeah, it was, and it was Regency Buck and I've been told that that's definitely not the right one to start with anyway but shortly after that I think I started Outlander on audio and from then on I was hooked I think that audiobooks are a transformative medium there's a separation between the text and the reader because there's a performance in between it and that's the interpretation of the characters by the narrator. And if the narrator does a good job, it's excellent and it can elevate an okay book to a great book. And if a narrator does a terrible job, it's awful and it can make a great book terrible. So there are some books that are much better in audio and some books that are much better in print, i found. What are some of your favourite audio performances of a good book? Well, I do think Outlander, the Outlander series is great, although it's only the first book that would qualify technically as a romance, depending on how fuzzy your definition of happy for now is. And uh, that's done by Davina Porter, and she's, you know, even if I read an Outlander book now, I hear her voice in my head reading it to me. It's just so closely associated. 
similarly with the J.D. Robb in Death books, Susan Erickson narrates those. And she, I mean, it sounds really weird because she's got this sort of sexy rock voice that she does. And it kind of, it, you know, every, all of, everyone's swooning about it. But it's this woman reading a story. It's kind of weirdly inappropriate. But there you go. <laughs> well, the opposite of that is Nicholas Bolton narrates Laura Kinsella's books. So for me, Flowers from the Storm was just an okay book. In fact, it's a book that I only found okay because everyone loved it so much. And so I kind of forced myself to find a way to appreciate it. It wasn't a book that really grabbed me and touched me. But when I heard the audiobook, I was like, oh, I understand what the magic is in this book that everybody can see. So obviously he has to narrate things from Maddie's point of view. Uh, and it's interesting how the actors portray the opposite sex in audio. And some do it better than others. There are some male narrators that are kind of famous for doing this weird falsetto drag kind of voice, which is just nobody likes it. And there are others that really don't even try to change their voice. And some people like that. And others have learned to sort of soften their pitch a little bit or just give some kind of subtle cue. And ultimately, I think the listener is prepared to buy into it, provided there's enough of a difference that you can tell who's talking. If you can't tell, it makes it really problematic to listen to. So Nicholas Bolton's great. Anything he narrates is fabulous. But another one that I really like is Alex Wyndham. And he's done some Lucinda Brandt, and she's a South Australian author. And I've listened to his, and he's also done other oh, names. I'm going to blank on the name now, but they're historical romances. And he's got a fabulous female voice. It actually sounds believably female to my ear. Okay. And that's really rare for a male narrator, whereas it's more common in my experience, for a female narrator to have a believable male voice for some reason. But even so, a lot of females just kind of sound more stern than deep or masculine. But that's the audio cue that it's the guy talking, and that works as well because you just kind of get into the bubble of the story. Provided there's enough of a difference, it works well. Do you have a preference between US accent and a British accent? No, but I have a bias about bad accents. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of my fellow reviewers at Audio Gales are Americans. So there's one uh, Brit, I think. I think there's only the one. And she and I pick up on accents much more strongly than the, the US people do. And I think, in part, it's because to a US ear who hasn't been around a lot of Australians or British people, they sound very similar. Whereas I can tell the difference between a New Zealand accent and a British accent and an Australian accent. And I know what they're supposed to sound like. And some of the accents that are used are horrendous. <laughs> and they're just... It's sort of like, um, you know, Meryl Streep in Evil Angels with a dingo took my baby. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so unbelievable. Or Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio doing a South African accent. Yes, it's just, yeah, so I'll always notice that and comment on it. And if there's an Australian character that's strongly in a book, the narrator needs to be able to do a really good Australian accent or it needs to be an Australian narrator, in my opinion, But I've also heard and seen interviews with narrators who said there was a character in the interview I couldn't do it, I couldn't do that accent, so I just did my normal accent because 
I'm I didn't want to no muck one. it up. Yeah. I'm fooling no one, so I did yeah. it that way. Are there any Australian narrators for romance fiction? There are a few. There's not a lot of romance fiction that I'm seeing coming through in audio. I'm hoping that there'll be more. You know, Kylie Scott's books are all out in audio, but they've got American narrators, and they're set in America anyway, so that makes total sense. But I uh, listened to The Rosie Project, and I can't remember the name of the narrator, but he's Australian, and I originally was a bit iffy about him, but he won me over quite quickly into the story. And that one needed to be Australian, because the, the book's set in Australia, Don's Australia, you know, Rosie's Australian, to put another accent into that story would have been wrong. And I read, I listened to, it's a non-fiction audio, but it had a romantic arc to it, about a lady who was, Australian lady who was over in the US, and she met a guy, fell in love with him immediately, and then he was leaving to go around the world on a yacht about three weeks after they met. And she ended up spending most of that year with him. Is this the non-fiction book? Yeah. Tor- is it Tora, Tora LaRoche yes. or something? I, I'm sure I got that name wrong, but it's something like that. Yes, and the narrator there was Australian. She did a great accent. Or if she wasn't Australian, she did a great enough accent that I couldn't pick the difference. So what other books um, have you enjoyed in audio? Oh. Are there, I, sorry, are there books in audio? Are there books that you enjoy only in audio and not in the original form? Yes, and there are some books that I tend to go to on audio for different reasons. So I prefer the audio of the Outlander series. Partly that's because they're so long and they take so much time to get through. And I'm as a blogger, I've got to get through books so that I can review them. And looking at a book that's sort of 1,500 pages makes me want to cry. Yeah. Whereas audio listening is a little bit less pressured for me and I find more time to do it. So if I'm in the car, I can have an audio book on or if I'm exercising or cooking or doing housework or whatever. Do you listen to it on normal speed or do you speed it up? Yes, either or I can't stand the chipmunks. <laughs> so no, I, I, normal speed for me. And then how do you take, like, so for example, if you're listening to an audio book that you plan to review, how do you take notes if you're doing other things? I don't really take notes for audio books and mostly... I don't do quotes for audiobooks unless there's something that really strikes me and then I'll just quickly write it down at the time and stick a sticky note and think I'll do that. With an audiobook, generally I'll finish it and within a day or two I've written the review and then I edit it myself to make sure that it makes sense to somebody who hasn't listened to the book. So I'm assuming that your audiobooks you mostly get from Amazon? I get them mostly from Audible. And through uh, review copies as well. Okay. Are there any other audiobook providers? Do you know? Because I've only also ever used Audible. You can subscribe to Downpour, which is Blackstone Audio's own subscription service. I only have the Audible one because it doesn't make sense for me to have two. But Audio Gals has a, a Downpour subscription, so sometimes there are books from there. Oh, iTunes, obviously. iTunes have audiobooks. And, of course, you can get some from the library. Yeah. And I do that when there's one available. So that's good too. Cool. Um, And so what got you started reviewing in the first place? I started reading romance after a, a long break away from it. And I didn't even know there was a romance community. I didn't know anything about blogs or online or anything But I was reading these books voraciously and I was enjoying them and I didn't have anyone to talk about with them. And there was a 
a bookshop in Perth that was a romance-only bookshop, and I was getting all my books from there. Was that temptation? Yeah. So I would buy, like, 15 at a go so that they could ship them to me for $10 or something at the time, and it worked out not too much dearer to do it that way, whereas if you bought one book, it was too expensive. And I was like, well, what book should I read next, and what should I read next? And they suggested that I look online, and I was a bit... I don't know what that is. And I found a review at Dear Author of a book that I'd read and followed some recommendations. And I started going to Dear Author and Smart Bitches Trashy Books and then Smexy Books and a couple of the other big ones and joined in the conversation. I was a lurker for a long time and then I started sort of commenting. And I found just having the conversation with people about the books that I was reading and books that were coming out was so much fun And then I thought, I found myself having all these opinions about the books that I was reading because I was talking about them more, which made me think about them more. I mean, I was so clueless at the beginning. I wouldn't have known feminism if I tripped over it. And a lot of the things that I'm much more sensitive to now I didn't see. And a lot of the various isms that are in the books that need to be called out I wouldn't have noticed. But having these conversations with these really smart people opened my eyes to a lot of this stuff. And so then I felt like I had more to say than just in a comment. So I thought, well, I'll just start a blog. And I kept it like a secret for a while. I didn't even write anything. I just thought, this is the only way I can get like a little gravitar picture. That's what I thought. I had no clue. But then I wrote a review. I think my first review took me four or five hours to write. It was ridiculous. Now it's a lot less, but it still takes a while. Yeah, yeah. And so then I started publishing reviews and then I found Twitter around that time or just before and having conversations with all these really great people and I just wanted to be part of that conversation so that was where that came from. And then as a regular commenter at Dear Author, Jane asked me a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago now, if I wanted to review for them as well and I was like, hold me back, of course I do, absolutely. So... My reviews there get a far bigger audience than the reviews on my own blog. And it's nice to know that more people are reading them. You mentioned that you're also on Twitter. Which social media form is your preferred form nowadays? Twitter. Twitter? Yeah. Is that because it's more immediate? Yeah, it feels like you're having an instant conversation. I don't really like Facebook. My blog has a Facebook page where things are just cross-posted to it. And I have a Tumblr as well, which is the same thing. But Twitter is where I do my conversing. And... I don't get that many comments on my blog, but we actually talk about the reviews on Twitter more often. I think that the conversation around blogs and comments has changed in the last few years, and rather than there being lots of comments on a blog post, there'll be conversations on Twitter that are much more immediate or that people might go back to when they find them later on in their highlights. Um, I find that to be community-specific as well. So I've noticed that a lot of the Dear Author commenters are also Twitter um, users, and so a lot of the conversation gets transferred over to Twitter. With Smart Bitches, I find they still have pages of comments. There are some other blogs where the blogger's Twitter presence isn't as strong, where the conversation still happens around the blogs, which I find kind of interesting because sometimes I, I feel like those communities don't really intersect, and I'm always like, how do we build one big happy romance community where everyone is involved and has a chance to get to know each other although I don't know I mean there's all about romance yes which is I guess 
one of the places where it all began, really. Yeah, but they've started for a long time. They didn't have comments on their. But they had forums, and their forums would like explode every time something controversial came up. But I think now they've got comments on their actual. They've changed the format. So, I mean, I find when I first started, I would go to all of these blogs. I would have ten or twenty blogs that I'd visit every day, and now I'm lucky if I check Dear Author. Well, I I depend on Twitter to curate for me now. Yes. So if I see something that keeps coming up, then I'm like, this seems to be important to readers who I kind of have an affinity with. So then I'll go and and look it up. And then I have to make a deliberate effort to every fortnight go through my reader and make sure that I'm sort of keeping track of what's going on in other blogs that maybe aren't on Twitter as much. Yeah, I subscribe to... Um, a number of blogs. So I subscribe to Book Thingo, and so I get an email that says there's a new post up. So that's that's the thing. If it's not coming up in front of my face, I'm not going to have time. Yeah. I can't go searching. And I subscribe to Liz McCoslin's blog and a few others as well, and that helps me stay in touch. But I think that the romance community is just so broad. I'm not sure it can be one big happy community. There's always going to be. It's a big tent, but there are people on one side of it that really don't want to talk to the people on the other yeah. side because there's such a vast... Different interests and different yeah. focus. I mean, even in Australia, we've now got a few events running that are romance-centric, and I'm not even sure that those are the same communities. I mean, I'm assuming not. Otherwise, you wouldn't run four. You would just run one. But Yeah, I don't think so. I think so some of the events are more about book signings and... And they really bring in, I think, the young people who are reading a lot of the YA and the new adult. And there's a huge following of some of these authors. And when they come out, they want to meet them and have book signings and stuff. And then there's more of the RWA kind of thing, which is much more writer-focused and craft. And then there's the ARA-type convention, which is more about readers and panels about readers and getting to meet authors but not just at a book signing so they've got slightly different functions but I haven't been to genre con um, that's more writers thing now and I haven't been to any of the writers festivals which are different again so well we hardly ever get romance in writers festivals no problem (laughs) Um, I think Brisbane had a a significant romance program one year Melbourne had it last year because they were in partnership with RWA Sydney, as far as I know, we're lucky to get one. I don't even think Adelaide has ever had one. No, not really. I mean, probably not very well tapped into the Adelaide writing community. So, you know, I don't even know when the Adelaide Writers Festival is on most of the time. We've reached the end of another episode. A big thank you to Rudy Bremer, our audio producer, who reminded me a few weeks ago that over the course of the past year and a half, she has had to remove sudden loud noises, coughing, and once even an entire child. You can find the show notes for this episode at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 34. I want to give a shout out to Kira Solior and Katrin Allen, who challenged Gabby and me for the title of Kinsale True Fan. Kira started Laura Kinsale's Facebook fan group, so you can see the level of devotion required to even be part of this debate. We also received a Facebook comment from Laura Dell. Laura wrote, Just want to say thanks so much for your podcasts. I really love them. 
I'm only up to this bit so far on this podcast where you are talking about Australian rural romance and sense of place. I really like most Aussie rural romances and prefer a definite sense of place to a completely fictional town setting. However, it got me thinking when you started asking about whether it's possible to set an Australian rural romance in a completely mythical place. Because so many of them are, to me, set in mythical places, a mythical white Australian countryside. The almost complete absence of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from Aussie rural romance really boggles my mind. Do you know of anyone who is breaking this ridiculous myth of Australian farming communities in romance? Laura, what a great comment. You have identified a troubling gap in how romance fiction portrays rural Australia. Rudy and I have talked about this privately before, and we think it could be a great topic for a future Blogger Roundtable episode. In the meantime, I can think of only two rural set romances with Indigenous Australian characters. Both are rural romantic suspense. The first is called As Darkness Falls by Bronwyn Parry, and one of the secondary characters is an Aboriginal tracker who works closely with a heroine. The second book I've read is Safe Harbour by Helene Young, which features an Aboriginal woman who is a community leader and one of the troubled teens in the community. I've also read a Mills and Boone book featuring an Aboriginal hero, but I can't remember if it had a rural setting. The book is called Her Galahad by Melissa James. It's not available on Kindle, but you can buy the ebook directly from the Mills and Boone Australia website. I'll include a link in the show notes. If any listeners out there know of other examples of rural romance novels with Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander characters, please let us know. In the coming episodes, I'll be featuring some of the authors who were at the 2017 Australian Romance Readers Convention in Melbourne. First up, I chat with Courtney Milan, author of Historical Romance and New Adult Romance. If you're listening through iTunes, make sure you subscribe to get the episode as soon as it's available. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading.